Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. Such as? So how can we understand men and women without lapsing into this control-focused mentality, this will for power? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are welcoming back our friend, Dr. Abigail Favale. Abigail, thanks for coming back and joining us again. Yeah, it's great to be here again. And we are here to talk about Dr. Favale's new book, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, from Ignatius Press that just came out a couple of months ago, which is a very exciting, very wide-ranging text covering the history of, not the entire, I don't want to oversell, not the entire history of literature, but touching on the history of literature, scripture, philosophy, and also 20th century thought. It is specifically addressing topics in the culture that are extremely disputed right now, revolving around feminism, revolving around gender ideology, which we touched on last year in our uh, two-parter interview. So uh, definitely go back and check out episodes 65 and 66. But today we're going to dive a little bit deeper and unpack uh, some of the foundations of how we think about these very thorny topics. And in addition to having published a new book, you also started at a new position uh, at the University of Notre Dame, correct? Yes, I just started. I joined the McGrath Institute for Church Life as one of their faculty members. So they do amazing work. Their mission is to connect the resources of the academy with the church as a whole. So they do a lot of direct work forming Catholic educators and people who work in parish ministry. So, and just public engagement, right? So I'm pretty excited to be here because it really aligns with my own sense of calling to engage with the church as a whole and not just the academy. Awesome. And I know, Abigail, this is something that's been kind of near and dear to your heart for a while, right? Yes. I am a super nerd about (laughs) gender and women and all these things. Yeah. So I think, why don't we start off way back in the day with Plato and his work, The Timaeus, which you discuss early on in the book. And specifically, you talk about the the hierarchical account of difference between men and women. Um, in a nutshell, can you give, give us an idea of how Plato describes that difference? Sure. So Plato writes in dialogues, right? So the Timaeus is not as much a back and forth as a lot of his dialogues are. It's almost like a monologue by this character, Timaeus. In it, Plato is using the language of mythology. He's using the language of cosmology and myth in order to kind of present some of his philosophical ideas about why things exist and how they exist. So it's very, it's really long and complex. It gets super mathy at one point. I don't even know what's going on there. Um, <laughs> but at the end, so he, he kind of describes this demiurge that begins to organize matter in the kind of receptacle space that's also there. And then the demiurge creates the gods and then the gods create human beings. And then what's interesting is at the very end, you finally get this account of where women come from because sexual differentiation has not even been mentioned at all. It's, it's like this, that's the very last thing. And basically in, in his kind of mythological account, it's men who do not live virtuously are reborn as women. Like that's his, and then if they're like really bad women, then they become animals. (laughs) And of course, you know, he's, again, he's using the language of myth. Like Plato doesn't, I'm sure doesn't think this is literally true. 
And the way I read Plato is everything kind of traces back to the one, the good. Which is like beyond matter and materiality and all that. Yes, absolutely. I think that means that any difference, he tends to read any kind of differentiation as bearing more or less proximity to that one. And so we have this differentiation in men and women. And so he has to think, okay, well, for him, men are a little bit closer on that hierarchy of being than women are. They're a little more perfect, a little more good. And so he has to kind of make it give some sort of explanatory account for why women exist. But I bring that up in the book mainly because I'm talking about Genesis, but I want to draw comparisons between Genesis and then other ancient cosmologies that do have a very, either they don't talk about sexual differentiation at all, or it's an afterthought, or it's even a bug in the system rather Mm. than, you know, something important. Whereas for Genesis, it's this culmination. It's like the final flourish of creation, not just that human beings are created, but also that they're sexually differentiated. So Genesis is really elevates this fact of our nature, whereas other cosmologies tend to disparage it. Yeah. It seems like those other cosmologies, and I think you talk about Oh shoot, I can't remember the name of it. I know Tienuma it's- Tienuma Elish, yeah, the Babylonian Thank you. creation yes. myth. Yeah. yeah, that's so fun. <laughs> it's such a wild ride, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how the book gets kicked off. And it seems like that in the Enuma Elish and in the Timaeus, they would be okay with saying it is good for man to be alone. Mm-hmm. It seems like, like not to put words in their mouth, but it seems like a big difference is that in the Genesis narrative, God sees everything as good that he's created up until he creates man seemingly alone. And he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And as a result, male and female, he created them. And only then is it good. Another thing the Genesis narrative is free from, uh, or the creation narrative in Genesis, because there's plenty of it later on, is domination, which seems to be a real governing dynamic in a lot of the non-Christian narratives as well. And it, it really struck me when you talked about the Timaeus, because I I remember reading about the account of the Demiurge creating the universe out of this sort of shapeless, amorphous matter thing that is just this receptacle. And it is not as violent as some of the other non-Christian creation accounts, but it's still that sort of basic domination of this formless thing by this other that stands above it, this, you know, transcending thing. And it reminded me of something that we're going to talk about later in the episode with Stranger Things. So you've seen Stranger Things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So, okay, in spoilers for season four of Stranger Things, the bad guy Vecna goes into the Upside Down for the first time, and he comes across these shadow particles, which have, again, no shape. They're just sort of whirling around. And he gives them shape using his, like, telekinetic powers that create one of the villains we see later in the timeline of the show, but earlier in one of the seasons, the Mind Flayer. And it felt very much like a microcosm of the Demiurge creating out of this formless receptacle. And that narrative of domination is very instrumental to how the villain in Stranger Things works. He doesn't like the domination that he sees human beings imposing over creation, but at the same time, he also practices it. He justifies it because he's the predator. And it felt relevant to what we were talking about, like unintentionally. So having watched it yourself, do you think... I guess, why do you think they they put that in there? Why do you think they would... Are they reading the Timaeus? (laughs) Are the writers of Stranger Things reading the Timaeus? Or are they just 
operating in our society and they see relationships of power and it seems relevant. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something innate about human nature that's this tendency to dominate, right? Like the libido dominandi. And yeah, it's interesting. I didn't think of Plato, mainly I think because in the Timaeus, the demiurge is good, I guess, you know, so, but it's, mm. it's almost like this inversion, this kind of evil demiurge, I guess, because he's not ordered toward oneness and goodness and this like unity of being that is the source of the good, right? He's well, just although, totally gone rogue. Though he is number one. He's one. He has the tattoo. <laughs> that was a huge spoiler, by the way. I, I apologize to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. All right. All right. Okay. I see what you're saying now. I didn't, that just occurred to me when you were just saying oneness. But I guess in a platonic sense, the the good, the one is the good. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. the source of all that's good. So. Maybe they, the writers don't like Plato. I'm yeah. Maybe. Vilify his. I mean, to me, it, in a, in some ways, it seems more like this depiction of like unfettered human will and power, yeah. like the will to power, you know? So like if, if we have kind of unrestricted human freedom and power, it's very likely that that urge to dominate will go unchecked, Yeah. right? Because I mean, one of the things I even argue in the book actually is, you know, I argue about how our embodiedness is a gift. And one of the gifts is the fact that it limits us. Yeah. One of the, you know, the fact that we do get sick, the, the fact that we are mortal, at least in this life. So the fact that we have limits is actually good for us because, you know, when you see in fictional accounts, like stranger things, human beings without limits, then it's quickly goes pretty awry. And that, that will to power is something that I think comes back up later in your, in your coverage of subsequent cultural trends, especially in the history of philosophy in the 20th century, where you talk about existentialists in the early 20th century, and specifically Simone de Beauvoir, who in her book, The Second Sex, is sort of laying the groundwork for what would come to kind of dominate subsequent iterations of feminism, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How would you say she kind of applies that attraction to power to her understanding of the sexes? Yeah, that's a good question. So she is working within an existentialist moral framework. So she's not a moral relativist. She's actually very, she very much has a moral vision. And so existentialism basically is the idea that the traditional way is our essence precedes existence. Okay, there we go. I had to get it right. And so that the existentialist, it's our existence precedes essence. In other words, the fact that we exist is prior to what we are because we in a sense, create ourselves, we become, out, you know, because of our own human freedom. So for Simone de Beauvoir, what she sees as unique about human beings is our capacity to transcend the brute facts of our existence. Um, so we can make tools, you know, we can imagine these possibilities and we can write stories, like we can do all these things that aren't just about survival. Um, most animals are just kind of being an animal, just trying to survive, but mm -hmm. human beings, we can transcend that to this higher plane of existence. And so for her, that becomes this moral imperative. Like you're, you're a bad human if you aren't transcending your facticity like actively. So she calls it a moral failing to kind of lapse just into that almost animal state. Yeah. And the problem I think is that her framework for this is very gendered. So she sees kind of male existence as more naturally able to transcend 
But women, you know, females have this pesky thing where we like gestate and we lactate. And so that ties us more closely to our facticity. So she, in her reading of this, she describes women as being enslaved to the species. Hmm. So she doesn't see the work of motherhood as being a transcendence because it's what we're, what we naturally do. It's what animals do, right? Animals have babies, animals feed them. You know, there's nothing particularly human or uniquely human about that. She's like, oh, but like, if you can make a hammer, that's awesome. (laughs) That's her value system. And, and even the way she describes, you know, men kind of acting in the world and achieving and conquering. And, you know, whereas women are just these kind of like termite queens, you know, just kind of like laying around just reproducing. So she's reading, reading human experience through this, through this value system. Um, And so basically for her, she's like women to be free to transcend, to really become human, they have to essentially become as much like men as possible. That basic idea, that bias has very much shaped, I think, Western feminist philosophy, which has an implicit masculine bias, ironically, because it still depends on this idea that women have to escape our femaleness as much as possible, you know, through contraception, through abortion, in order to be free, to be emancipated. So what struck me about that, I tried to put myself in the position of her ideal those men who are achieving and conquering and working in the world and transcending their facticity, the brute facts of their physical being. And I thought about what my working life might be like if I was in the 30s or 40s and I didn't believe in God like she doesn't. And there is no kingdom of God to build up. So that dimension of work is absent. There is no supernatural life that Christ can incorporate us into. And I'm thinking about what would be left after that if I just had some ordinary job without that framework. And that felt tremendously empty. I think that kind of emptiness is something that men feel. I don't want to speak for women, but I think that men feel that maybe to a greater extent because, and maybe this is just a result of cultural conditioning, maybe it's not, men don't have as rich interior lives as women do. And and I wonder if... Beauvoir is assuming that men get more satisfaction out of that kind of work than they actually do. And so my my question is, if if you're comfortable speaking on her behalf, I guess, why does she think that work is so great for men? And why is it so transcendent? Okay, let me put my little Simone de Beauvoir hat on. (laughs) So first of all, a big problem is capitalism. She remember her her kind of utopian vision is really Marxist. Mm -hmm. So she would probably respond to you and say, well, of course your work is empty and meaningless because you're part of this capitalist system. But if we were part of this, you know, Marxist socialist utopia, where we're no longer alienated from the products of our labor, we actually had meaningful work, then you would feel fulfilled. So that's probably one thing she would say is to kind of critique capitalism. That said, you know, I'm kind of taking my hat off now. Um, (laughs) I do think that she romanticizes the male experience. I mean, she's a philosopher, right? So it seems like she, as most philosophers do, romanticizes (laughs) the philosophical contemplative life, right? So she would say that you are in a much better position to have a rich interior life if, you know, you're well-educated and able to Because for her, it's not just work. It's about, she uses the word projects. Like, oh yeah. It's much more about kind of creative action in the world. 
Now it's true. Like in certain economic systems, we have to sell our labor. Right. So, you know, she might critique that, but in her kind of utopian vision, there would be a way for us all to have meaningful work. Of course, it doesn't really work. Even when she describes <laughs> in the end of the second sex, she's describing, you know, like, oh, what do we do with all these kids? You know? So she describes this weird kind of like centralized daycare system where I'm like, I wonder like who's doing the raising who's, and do they not have meaningful work? Right. If raising kids is, you know, for her, she would think that that's just death to an interior life basically. But for some reason, I don't know, maybe she thinks if like, they're not your kids, then I don't know. It just doesn't really work. It's Plato actually has the same problem in book five of his Republic where he's trying to figure out like, okay, how do the philosopher King and Queens, how do we get them to populate, but then also not have to actually raise the kids. And anyway, it gets really dystopian. Um, so I see a lot of, <laughs> a lot of similarities there and a lot of the same biases, right? This yeah. basically this, because of maybe this emphasis on oneness in Plato and then autonomy and Simone de Beauvoir, but also solidarity, right? So femaleness, the interdependent nature of pregnancy and lactation, it's just a bug in a system when it comes to their philosophical frameworks that they're working with. Because she's sort of averse to those aspects of being a woman, do you think she is also maybe not seeing how those seemingly like purely biological brute facts actually do reflect something of a meaningful and transcendent life? Yeah, she seems pretty blind to it. And, you know, it's true. Like, Pregnancy can be really hard. Like it's not a walk in the park. I have terrible, really hard pregnancies. So it can be actually really challenging to have a rich interior life when you're surrounded by really small children. You mm -hmm. know, there's, there's a certain kind of rhythm you have to get into. Yeah. So it's not like we don't need to sort of idealize, overly idealize it. Right. But then she takes all the meaningful aspects that are tied up in that out. I think one, when she's so focused on creative action, but it's like, being creative seems to only matter if you're creating a thing rather than creating a person. And that just seems really strange to me because I think there's so much meaningful creative action in bearing and raising human beings. That's so much more complex and difficult, but also more meaningful and potentially more impactful, you know, yeah. than even than writing a book or something like that. Though, you know, I could see where she's coming from there because if you're, let's say you're in a creative activity and you're creating a thing, if you put paint on a canvas to paint a picture, the paint goes where you brush it. But if you have a child and you're trying to look at that as creative activity, if you tell a child to do X, they might not, very easily might not. So maybe she sees it as like impossible to be creative when raising children just because you can't impose your will on them. And the product, quote unquote, that results does not reflect the idea of it that you had in your head at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. The more I studied these philosophies that go into the contemporary understandings of gender, the more everything kept coming back to control yeah. and the human need for control. And I almost wonder if that's a way of expressing our kind of core sin as human beings is this desire to control what we should receive as gift, because yeah. it seems like that's just, that's a, a temptation that we continually succumb to. So how can we understand men and women and maybe try to define men and women without kind of lapsing into this control focused mentality, this, this drive, this will for power? Well, yeah. How should we define women? I mean, that's the 
the question du jour. <laughs> what is a woman? Yeah. A lot of people nowadays are trying to do it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that you mentioned that is not the best attempt is when people talk about defining women as just an adult human female. Mm -hmm. And you don't quite go in that direction in the book, right? I mean, I do, but then I go further than that, yeah. right? So adult human female, that does give us content to work with. Mm -hmm. And it's true that there are human beings, you know, roughly half are male, roughly half are female. So we need terms that name that category, right? There's lots of female things in the world. Not all of them are human. There are a lot of human beings. Not all of them are female. So we need a word that draws together human and female. And human gives us content like rational, capable of, you know, language and, you know, has all these kind of potentialities in it. But sure. female, I think, you know, it just kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit because then you know, you get a response like, well, what about, you know, what about people with disorders of sexual development? Or what about a woman who's had a hysterectomy? You know, is, is she still female if, you know, we're just defining women by, you know, body parts, right? So there tends to be this like focus on um, kind of secondary sexual characteristics, like, oh, and what if, what if someone has an atypical or doesn't have that particular characteristic? And so, I borrow the philosophical distinction of potentiality and actuality to help define. So in this way, potentiality refers to innate capabilities that we have, whether or not they're ever actualized. Okay. So a female or a woman then is the kind of human being whose whole body is organized according to the potential to gestate life within. All right. So you have to look at the whole. So that's a mistake people make, I think, in these debates is just zeroing in on just looking at DNA or just looking at genitalia. But you have to look at the organization of the body as a whole. And it's organized, whether, whether one's had a hysterectomy or not, whether one has a disorder of sexual development or not, the whole body is going to be organized either to toward the potential of gestating life within or toward the potential of creating life in another. Now, when it comes to infertility, that's another objection you hear. Well, what about a woman who can't gestate life within her? Right. Well, okay. that's why the word potentiality is so important because the very definition of infertility depends upon an innate potential that's not being actualized. Right. So if a man can't get pregnant and he goes to the doctor and he's like, ah, I can't get pregnant. The doctor's not going to be like you, you're probably infertile, right? He's going to look at sperm count. So sim similar, like my sperm count right now, I can tell you is really low, right? You know, <laughs> exactly. but that doesn't mean I'm infertile, right? Because the very category of infertility calls back to the kind of potential that I have. And then there's something that's interfering with it becoming actualized. So I think that helps answer a lot of the common objections and it, it accounts for a lot of different circumstances that males and females might be in, but nonetheless, you have to look at the, the person as a whole. And then I would also add man and woman, these are personal categories in the sense that it's referring to a whole person. So if we just focus on the femaleness, it, it almost sometimes feels a little too reductive biologically because being a woman is so much more than just being female, right? It's also about having this whole personal reality. It's about all the ways, all my relationships in the world. And it's just so much bigger than I am an adult, but this is my species. This is my age. This is my sex, right? Yeah. All the stats on the back of the baseball. Yeah, card, like, exactly. Yeah. So it has to do with, you know, especially from a Catholic perspective, if we have this anthropology of human beings as a unity of body and soul, 
then there's also a spiritual dimension to womanhood. And of course, there's a psychological dimension. There's also a sacramental dimension and a, and a theological importance of maleness and femaleness in that they image the Trinitarian love of God in a particular way, mm-hmm. the interpersonal love of God, and the fact that we are hashtag made for love, right? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I think I dog-eared that page in the book where you use that phrase. I love, I love it when we can sneak our title in somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but that's true, right? So John Paul II calls this the spousal meaning of the body. Mm-hmm. And again, you see this in Genesis, right? The fact that my human femaleness also points toward human maleness and the fact that, you know, I have the capacity or woman has the capacity to have interpersonal and one flesh communion with a man. And through that, there's the capacity to create new life. And that not only has importance for the continuation of the species, but it, it also actually probably more importantly is pointing toward divine realities. That's part of how God reveals himself to us, which is amazing. Like that our sexual differentiation is part of God's self-revelation. Like just, Mm -hmm. just like sit with that for a while, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's so profound and beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think that that means we are, we are set up to conclusively define, or at least reach an initial satisfactory definition of women and men. So once again, for people in the back, can we say that a woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life in herself, and that a man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to generate new life in another. Are we good? I mean, that sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, it's not magisterial, but it's at least, I think, maybe less susceptible to some of the errors that we've talked about with some of these other accounts of gender. So maybe we can take a break from talking about this and care for wounded people. Mm, yeah. And then maybe we can just relax and grab a beer. <laughs> because these conversations are very difficult and very stressful, which is why I'm grateful for your book having really experienced both sides of this ongoing cultural division and being able to speak to both sides in ways that are really intelligible to them. And for that reason I I really recommend our listeners to go out and get the Genesis of Gender. It's really helpful for tying all these things together and not just kicking the can down the road, but actually <laughs> arriving at a satisfactory conclusion. So Abigail, with that said, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? You just gave me a blank slate. I could say anything <laughs> I wanted, right? Like what that's, if, that's right. We're yeah. queen for a day. Well, <laughs> you have a shapeless, formless receptacle to impose your image on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think what, where you just went is really important, right? Because There's the philosophical and the theological discussion, which I think is immensely important. And I think people need to bone up on that to be able to navigate these conversations. But at the same time, there's the personal dimension. And there's the fact that there are real people who are kind of being caught up in this framework that I call the gender paradigm in the book. That's And that framework isn't good. The framework is, is ultimately, I think, harmful to human beings. But at the same time, we have to make sure that our hearts are open to the people who are caught up in that framework or who are wrestling with these questions and trying to figure it out. And we need to be able to to have our schools and our parishes be places where we can accompany people who are in different places on this. And so the the human person can't be lost. Because I think one of the critiques I have of the gender paradigm actually is that 
it takes all these different complex kinds of human suffering and it lumps them all together into this one problem and says, here's the one solution. Yeah, right. So there's all kinds of, especially young people, right? Because it's young people who are seeking out kind of gender transition in just unprecedented numbers. And so there's this cry of the heart, I think, that we need to listen to. But then we also need to have a sense of suspicion toward the framework, the answer that our culture is offering right now, that actually, I think, dismisses the human, like the individual person in front of you who might be attracted to the framework for a variety of reasons, right? But it's just, it becomes this reductive thing like, oh, this is what's wrong with you. You're in the wrong body. Here's how you fix it. Let me write you a script. And then then I can wash my hands of you. Um, I've just kind of set you on the road. And yeah, we can pretend like the problem is solved, even though we don't have any research really to indicate that it does solve the problem. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's really shocking. Like the more, in fact, this week, actually one thing I was doing my first week at the new job, I was just rereading all the existing kind of peer reviewed studies on medical treatments for gender dysphoria. And it's really remarkable to really look and see what pretty radical and drastic medical procedures are being doled out on the basis of very low quality evidence and almost zero follow-up. And we're doing this to young people. Like it really is a medical scandal. And I don't think people quite realize the significance there. You know, it's it's easy for it just to sound like this kind of conservative conspiracy theory, like, (laughs) oh, you know, they're just sterilizing our kids, you know. If you really look at even just what's being published in the scientific literature, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. Well, that will about do it for us. Abigail, again, thank you so much for joining and for sharing this book with us. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. I thought I was put here to pay for what I've done. But I might have been put here for some other reason. Maybe I... Maybe I can still help Elle, even if it's the last thing I do. You almost sound religious, American. Religious? I don't know about that. Well, maybe I should give that prayer thing a try. And we are back to finish talking about season four of Stranger Things. Kara Bach, thank you for joining us as always. So good to be here. Yeah, so we can talk about how season four uh, wraps up with the last two episodes being released uh, in the beginning of July. The second last episode was like an hour and a half long, and then the season finale was over two hours long. It was like a full, long movie, basically. (laughs) Feature film. Yeah. So, Kara, now that you've seen the whole season, is Stranger Things a secret Catholic show? I mean, make your pitch, make your pitch good, Brad. I'm, I'm, I'm not like obviously convinced, but I'm open. Well, I made the pitch largely in the last episode where I was trying to make the case that the, the satanic panic around Dungeons and Dragons was a, a Protestant anti-Catholic thing. And I was trying to tie in Dungeons and Dragons to J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't think I would defend it as strongly now, having seen the last episodes as I would, <laughs> uh, as I w- did last time. The only thing I would add to it, I went back and watched the scene in episode seven where uh, Hopper is talking to his Russian buddy in, in when they're in prison, which we just clipped at the beginning of this episode. And that clip sounded even more sacrificial than I remembered. 
and they make explicit reference to sounding religious. And the Russian guy, when he says that, he has there's a shadow over his face in the shape of a cross. So that was the only the only thing that I would add. Other than that, though, I would say no. Stranger Things is not yet until season five in like a year or two. Stranger Things is not a secret Catholic show. Well, to your observation there about sacrifice, I do feel like that the idea of sacrificial love was a very heavy theme in these last two episodes. Let's just say the ending of the of the season. Yeah. You know, first of all, you've got Max who explicitly is offering herself as bait, and then you also have Eleven who has her you know Empire Strikes Back moment where she's in like quote unquote training and they say she's not done yet she's like i have to go save my friends and obviously there's like great cost to both of those things and it's it's shown as good i mean it doesn't always it doesn't work out the best spoiler alert <laughs> yeah kind of like empire yeah. strikes back who yeah also spoilers for the entirety of season four of stranger things if you haven't watched it yet why are you listening to this <laughs> right yeah go, definitely go back and listen to our segment in episode 92 first yes for sure Another one on the sacrificial part is that Eddie goes back and sacrifices himself Mm -hmm. to keep the bats away. Yeah, no, that's a good point because he draws attention to the fact that he never does. He always runs away. It's interesting, like, on the one hand, obviously, a Christian moral view was completely novel in Christ's time and... The idea that like the greatest love is to lay your life down for your friends was and is radical. But I think nowadays, in a way that it's like we see it as being an obviously Christian sourced virtue, the reality is that like we live in Western civilization, which for better or for worse has been formed by Christianity. And so this is sort of a very classic Western civ kind of idea of sacrificial love being a undilutedly good thing. And yet, we say we're, we're used to it, right? And yet, whenever we're faced with having to choose to pay higher taxes or get our budgets cut or something like that, we immediately recoil because we're unwilling to sacrifice. Because on the flip side, in a consumerist culture, like the messages that we get pelted with 24-7, and the messages that the characters in Stranger Things get pelted with, because they're just as exposed to commercials and branding and advertising as we are. You see this like in every little corner of the show. Sacrificial love is the opposite of what you should be striving for. Well, you bring up an interesting point. I don't want to ever say it's easier to like physically die. Obviously, that's not true. <laughs> but I think in a way, like, you know, grand gestures feel like a more obvious choice. Yeah. Like, whenever I think about if I was in a physically dangerous situation, like, would I put myself at danger in order to save my daughter? Like, of course. But when it comes to things like, Choosing to leave work early so that we can spend time with our families. Those are the little tiny bits of dying to ourselves that you're alluding to. Or like, yeah, paying higher taxes for social goods. Where I think the connection or the obviousness of the sacrifice that you're making is harder to connect. And it's more like ongoing too. You know, it's not making a grand gesture kind of like it's over when it's done. And then you can go back to like however you were living in a way. Yeah. Obviously not if you are like literally sacrificing yourself but you know what i mean where there's like it's easier to make like a big to do than it is to be like yeah i'm gonna take the less sexy job because i get out at a better time so i can spend time with my kids 
Exactly. And and to have to do it on a regular basis where you can't summon that like very dramatic swell of emotion like Eleven right. does at the end of the season where she saves Max's life or something. You can't feel that feeling five days a week. Wouldn't it be nice? No, actually, that would be exhausting. That would be exhausting, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of the struggle with the spiritual life, not to like get too off track here, but you know, it's one of those where it's like, you know, especially if you've been away from the church or you have sort of like a big conversion moment you get such a high from that. My husband is a convert and he talks about that kind of coming down from the high of conversion to where you're just like, yep, I go to mass every Sunday. And like, yep, I got to just pray. You know, that's like just has to be part of your daily routine. Um, and like there's no trophy or like big to do or party at the end of a week where you've just been faithful. Which is probably why the church gives us like feast days on a regular basis. So we we do get to retain some of that. Yeah. Well, even things like, you know, having Lent and Christmas and like seasons matter because I mean we're human and we kind of need them. This is why I will never willingly move to California where it's like literally the same temperature every day. <laughs> So when Vecna is giving his rationale for being a bad guy, he talks a little bit about this. I don't think we planned on talking about it from this angle, but he talks about how human beings impose man-made order on the world, and he uses time, like the clock, as an example. And he talks about like seconds, minutes, hours, etc., etc. And then he connects it to like another sequence of events, birth, wake up, work, procreate, go to sleep, die, or something like that. And he's just saying, like, in the absence of any real purpose, human beings, like, the worst thing they do is impose this artificial order on the world. Which the idea of sacrificial love very much flies in the face of, because that's a very good, real reason for living. Which is kind of man-made and kind of natural, in the sense of being, you know, freely chosen, and in that sense is man-made, but also... It's natural because it is the culmination of our nature. It fulfills our nature because it's the greatest love. Yeah, that's a good point. I kind of forgotten about that speech, but you're right. It's sort of, um, I mean, he's meaning it as uh, like an indictment of human nature. But, you know, especially in like a Judeo-Christian worldview, like our human nature is given to us by God and therefore is like a good thing. Yeah. You know, even our proclivities towards sin, it's because we have, you know, the free will to choose between virtue and vice. And like, that's the struggle that we have. That's another angle of what Hopper is talking about in that prison cell. Because he, th he says, at first, I thought I was here to be punished for what I'd done. And now I think I'm here to actually do something for L, even if it's the last thing I ever do. He just summed up, uh, actually, <laughs> a theological disagreement. There are two ideas of why Christ died on the cross. One is called penal substitution and one is called substitutionary atonement. And he just summed those both up in a nutshell. Penal substitution is what he thought he was there for, was to be punished. And substitutionary atonement is to suffer for the sake of, just like Christ suffers for the sake of us. But no, I'm still not, Kara, I don't care how much you try to convince me. I'm not saying Stranger Things is a secret Catholic show yet. <laughs> Because I think that was the only real scene that jumped out. The, the rest of the last two episodes to me. Although it sounds like you got more out of the whole, the sacrificial love angle than I saw. But it, I think you noticed more than I did there. I think especially, uh, I was like, Max is very like explicit about it. But even Eleven sort of like taking on the responsibility of her powers and taking on the fact that she's like unleashed Vecna on the world. Like she created him in a way. 
I don't or at least think like that's participated fair. I, in the. I think Vecna's well, it's certainly a turning, like sending him to the other side. You know, that sort of like creates a different kind of element to him. But yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think she did. I think that that's like part of how she sees it, though. Or, I mean, she says, "I killed you before. I kill you again." <laughs> Which I was like, "Yowza, girl! That's a." <laughs> Yeah, like she was a six-year-old girl who was stopping a mass murderer from continuing his rampage on Earth. She didn't plan on turning him into Freddy Krueger. Like that's just <laughs> that no, was of course not the not. point. The one other thing I wanted to just bring up there in terms of the interesting sort of theological parallels, I mean, we find out in this episode that Vecna. I guess is the one who's sort of marshalling the hive mind slash mind flare. Yeah. It was a little unclear at first, but I, so Dustin's theory at one point earlier in the season is that the mind flare is in charge and Vecna is his general. Right. But it seems to be that it's actually the opposite that like Vecna is actually the one who is marshalling the mind flare. So he is not in fact the, the general acting at the behest of the mind flare but the mind flayer is some sort of like puppet. I read it as he gets sent to this other world's source unknown, but that he does have control over it. The mind flayer existed, but it now is under the control of Vecna. Like Vecna ultimately is the big bad. It's not the amorphous mind flayer. It's actually Vecna, which is way more satisfying as a big baddie than random Facelift. shape-shifting massive molecules of dust or whatever. I'd be good with that. I just want to know, hopefully in season five, they say, okay, well, like, what was it that was shooting Vecna with lightning that turned him into the monster? And mm. what's the deal with these shadow particles and, like, the Demogorgon creatures? If Vecna's in charge, what put him in charge? <laughs> So speaking of Vecna, Carrie, you had some thoughts on how Vecna and all the rest of the creatures from the Upside Down are like related as like a hive mind, right? I mean, I guess it's sort of implied that the mist creature, I think it's the mind flare. The shadow particles, yeah. Yeah, in the Russian prison, I guess, enter into the sentient beings, which that really reminded me a lot of Independence Day, by the way, which I don't know if that was like meant to be the reference, but... Oh, yeah, where they're they're like kept in the observation jars and then they get out and wreak havoc, yeah. Yeah, then they like wake up. So the waking up apparently is like the shadow creature like enters into them, which is interesting because we do find out that Vecna is the one sort of controlling the mind flare. And we know from Will that he's sort of always marked in a way and kind of... Despite the fact that he obviously was released from the Mind Flare, he still feels a connection to it. This might be a stretch, but it did remind me a little bit of in The Brothers K, Zosima, the monk that is sort of the like mentor to Aloysia in the book, talks a lot about sort of our kind of shared connectedness and responsibility for the sin of others. And... I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel of just the fact that, you know, there's like this connection and that, you know, your particular sins are not isolated to you and that there's this sort of like fabric that connects people and that that's sort of a Christian, at least an Eastern Christian idea of our sin having impact on others and not just on ourselves and that we have like some kind of redemptive responsibility for other people's sins and not just our own. 
Yeah, I think like in the West, we tend to be more individualistic, probably for better and for worse. And so maybe that's a point of emphasis that we're missing out on. I don't think it's totally absent, but I think we're maybe missing out on that. So that's a good point. That's about the extent of my insight into the Brothers K. <laughs> There's a lot to be answered about the Upside Down still, because in the scene where they show him entering the Upside Down, it doesn't look like Hawkins, right? It's just like a sort of desert scape. I think that one is reasonable because they talk about how the Upside Down that we know, the one that looks like Hawkins, is a snapshot in time that was mm. created at the beginning of the series. So the current season takes place in 1986. The snapshot is from 1983, the first season, because the inciting incident of the first season, when Will got sucked into the gate that was inadvertently created by Eleven in the first season, as soon as Will got sucked in, that's the snapshot. Mm. Before that point, it didn't look like Hawkins. It looked like what you see in the Vecna flashback, where it's just this sort of amorphous hellscape. Yeah, I hope they explain kind of like why the Upside Down like became Hawkins then or became like a mirror image of the real world at that point. You know, maybe it will forever be a mystery. But I hope in season five they kind of delve into like the sort of inciting incident. So I think Will entering the Upside Down created this. It's sort of like um, in, <laughs> I don't want to get too complicated here. In Inception... Right, They create a dream world, and then the dreamer fills it with their secrets. Mm. Here, yeah. you have the Upside Down, which is just this weird other world. And then as soon as a person enters it, they fill it with their surroundings that they remember, or the, the world that they inhabit. Now, I think that's because Will was like the first person sucked in, except Vecna got sucked in four years before that. So why? Right. That's the thing that... My, my pause at just like that Will populates it is that Vecna obviously has a very clear connection to that house. Yeah. Which is in Hawkins. So maybe Vecna populates it with his own little subsection that he remembers. And maybe Will populates it with his own little subsection. That's so true. when you get sucked in, you, you bring in a little bit of it. Well, speaking of, of Vecna... At least, like, my impression of where this is all heading is that, like, you know, the Y is definitely, uh, I'm coming after L. <laughs> <laughs> well, because he says at one point that he had always imagined, like, she would be by his side. And I feel like the common theory I keep running across is everyone's like, so is one, like, her biological father? Is this, like, full-on Empire Strikes Back? Oh, no. Yeah, because we don't know. As her mom's being experimented on. Dark show in that way. Anyway. Let's see. So they, they make some Lord of the Rings references in the show. You know, they talk about Mordor and the Shire. But I also found a couple of quotes. There's one where they say, get off the road, get off the road quick, which is something, at least in the movies, I, I don't remember in the books, but at least in the movies, Frodo says that when the Nazgul are coming. There's another one, uh, no matter what comes through that door, stand your ground, which is something that Gandalf says at the Battle of Minas Tirith when there's a troll oh, breaking yeah, out right. the door. I don't know if those are intentionally quotes, but those seemed a little more specific than just run or something, <laughs> which could easily be in both and be a total coincidence. I think we talked about friendships on the last episode, but I did feel like they had a lot of clips of Elle and Max, and I was like, huh, 
didn't really think their friendship was that deep, but okay. <laughs> it also feels like maybe this is, you know, the Duffer brothers and their impression of like the depth of female friendships is like going shopping together. <laughs> and I'm like, I object. It's like these two <laughs> dudes thinking to themselves like, okay, if the world is going to be saved through women being friends with each other, what does that look like? Shopping like probably, the- right? <laughs> Yeah, like, what do girls do when they're good friends? They, like, go to the mall and gossip about boys. <laughs> Consult some women. Oh, good grief. That, that, was my, that was my feminist rant for this episode. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, next season we'll, we'll come back and I'll come up with a new secret Catholic conspiracy theory about the show. And Carol will come up with a new feminist rant. Indeed. That's, that's what we're here for. <laughs> I'm excited for season five, though. Whenever they decide to grace us with it, I'm excited for it. I'm here for it, as the kids say. They just said sometime in 2024. I think they just announced that today, so. (laughs) All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Thanks for having me. See you, good bread. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.